Well, I made it alive back from camping. Not entirely thanks to Jeff. He probably just didn't want to amend the budget and start over with another intern. That's okay. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter 2, and we'll look at verses 17 through 22 this evening. Would you pray with me before we begin? Our Father and our God, we are blessed to be known by you and to know you in the fellowship of the covenant you have initiated. You are our God and we are your people. And you grow us and nourish us and feed us with your word, with the ordinary means of grace. And in this passage and in the preaching of it, we ask that you would attend to it with the power of your spirit, the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and we with him, never to die again. Mold us to his image and work in us what pleases you, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand as we read Second Peter Chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Speaking of the false teachers, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the shepherd who continues to care for his flock even after his ascension into glory. This is key to keep in mind as we look at this passage and as we have looked at this chapter over the last few months. Peter is addressing the church's situation. There are false teachers who are on the rise who are deceiving God's people. They are leading God's people astray. They are wolves in sheep's clothing out to destroy the sheep. Here Peter is warning the church of these false teachers. This chapter he has described them at some length. He describes their ungodly lifestyle, particularly their their greed for money and their sexual immorality. He describes their foolishness. 
the exploitation of their followers, that all they want from their followers is their money. And here he highlights the emptiness of what they promise. Now, why does Peter go at length to do this? He describes the false teachers to encourage God's people to be on the lookout for them so that they can avoid them. So it is key that we remember Christ as the good shepherd when we consider this passage. The good shepherd cares for his flock. One way he does that is by warning us about the wolves. Think of the familiar psalm, Psalm 23, how it shows God's shepherding heart for his flock. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even when wolves are present, I will fear no evil. Even the false teachers. Why am I able to do that? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God does not redeem us and then leave us to fend for ourselves. He is with us, and as the Shorter Catechism says, He defends us and restrains and conquers all His and our enemies. We hear through the Apostle Peter, God warns the sheep, the Good Shepherd warns the sheep of the wolves. And in so doing, he encourages our renewed trust in him. And this can help us deal with false teaching in the many ways that it comes at us. False teaching manifests in obvious ways and in subtle ways. Some more obvious ways could be the college professor who tries to turn the Christian freshmen in his class into atheists. It could be the televangelist who convinces an immature believer that if he just sends in his financial contribution, then God will, will bring prosperity to his life. It could be the teacher, internationally renowned, nice smile, good personality, maybe even a foreign accent, couldn't hurt, who takes scripture out of context, he repackages ancient heresy, and he makes his teaching to seem biblical because he says, well, that's what the Bible says. Don't hold me accountable for it. You might say that, yes, I know about those dangers. I've seen them. I avoid them. I know to avoid them in the future. And that is good. That is a gift of God in providing discernment. But there are subtle ways that false teaching comes at us, or more accurately, comes from within us, from our flesh. False teaching in these subtle ways could say, what we heard about this morning. I know Jesus said not to be anxious about my circumstances, but look at my circumstances. Of course I should be anxious. As if there are any reason not to trust the Lord for what we need. I know I need to love my neighbor as myself, but look at my neighbor. Completely unlovely. Why should I love him? Or could say, it makes a lot of sense that God would want me in his kingdom. Who wouldn't want me on their side? Countless other ways we convince ourselves of what is false. Not just the obvious, but even more deadly, the subtle. We hear one way biblical wisdom gives us a framework to deal with false teaching in its various forms is to recognize that it is not as it seems. It is not as it seems. It seems like freedom, it is bondage. It seems life-giving, but it is death. You're not going to get what you want from this. You won't get what you hope for from this. You weren't made to live this way. This will only end in disappointment. So instead, see the surpassing value of the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. 
I've entitled this sermon, Another Profile of Unbelief, because it is a continuation of what we saw last time. It is a further description of false teaching and the false teachers, so that we would cultivate discernment to recognize it and to avoid it by God's grace. So this leads us, first of all, to see the empty promises of the false teachers. In verse 17, Peter refers to them as waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. These are two pictures highlighting the worthlessness, the emptiness of the false teachers. So picture this. You're in the desert. You're in the wilderness. You're a weary traveler. You need water. You need to be refreshed to get energy to keep traveling. And you see a well. You come upon a well, and you're relieved. I can, I can get water for myself because I'm dying of thirst. You look down in the well, and it's bone dry. Nothing inside it is a complete disappointment. The well is worthless. It has no life-giving water. Or picture, again, that you're a farmer. All the seeds are planted in your fields. Everything's in place. You've done everything you need to do as the farmer. All you need is a good, long, steady rain. It's been a dry season, but you see that there are clouds. It's completely overcast, and it looks promising for your crops. And then nothing happens. Maybe some mist comes down, but no rain. Another total disappointment. Those clouds were worthless. They didn't do anything. They only gave some mist, but no life-giving rain. Same thing is true for these false teachers. They seem to have the answers. They seem to be wise. They offer what seems to be a more enjoyable way of life. Who says you need to observe the law? Who says Christ is actually returning? Who says there's a final judgment? Don't worry about any of that. Live how you want to live. And Peter goes straight from this description of the worthlessness of the false teachers into what their destiny is. What will happen to them ultimately? Verse 17, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So they are to expect condemnation instead of blessing at the final judgment. They are not like the good shepherd who leads me beside still waters. They don't offer anything of value. Instead, verse 18, they offer loud boasts of folly. What they say sounds impressive, sounds good, but there's nothing to it. It's just empty. It's vacuous. This, this sense of the loud boast of folly, there, there, there is a sense of emptiness here, that there's nothing to it. What they say is big and boastful, and there's no substance. Peter goes on to say, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. That is, they, they try to convince you that there's no final judgment. There's no point in which you're going to have to give account for the deeds you did in the body. There's no moral imperative for the Christian whatsoever. There's no reward for obedience in the life to come. And if there's no moral obligation, then there's no reason not to live like the pagans. Why would there be a need for that? Perhaps they had a mantra that went something like this. Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. There's a reference to 
how they deceive those who are barely escaping. It's probably a reference to, to new converts, to a baby Christian. These are, are new Christians. They're young in the faith. They're not established. They're not firmly rooted in the teaching of Scripture. And so they are more easily deceived. And so the false teachers most likely know this about these new Christians. It's easier to trick a young Christian than it is to trick a mature one. Why would you waste your time trying to wear down an established believer when you can easily get one who doesn't know any better? And this brings out how the false teachers actually prey upon the weak and the immature. They know what the signs are, and they know how to sift them like sand. That, again, is the opposite of what the good shepherd does. He does not prey upon the weak. He cares for them, and he leads them to maturity. Verse 19 They promise them freedom. The false teachers promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So these false teachers offer bondage to corruption, and they call it freedom. They offer what they themselves do not have. They promise what they cannot deliver. Proverbs 25, 14 picks up on this on the same theme, especially with the imagery of of the lack of water that we talked about. It says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. They boast of, of life, but they cannot give it because they themselves do not have it. Don Carson calls them spiritual charlatans. They promise nurturing and refreshing water, but they provide none is brought out more clearly in Jeremiah 17. Let's turn there together. Jeremiah 17. This is similar to the two trees you read about in Psalm 1. Let's start at verse Five. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. These false teachers do not bear any fruit, and they cannot offer what they promise. Similar to Jesus' words in John 4 to the Samaritan woman. He says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The opposite of a waterless spring. Back in October, Scott Robinson and I went and saw Jurgen Moltmann speak at Florida Southern because that's what Scott and I do for fun. <clears throat> he's, a, he's a modern theologian teaches at Tübingen in Germany. 
He's a tritheist. I think the newspaper said something along the lines of how he's the most influential theologian alive, something to that effect. He spoke about the the need to preserve non-human life so that it can continue after humanity dies out. He was developing an eco-theology, other nonsense to that effect. And you hear what the world says about this man, most influential theologian alive. And then you hear what he had to say. And Scott and I were like, really? That's it? That's all you have to say? That's what makes you so famous and influential? All hype and no substance. These false teachers can't offer freedom because they themselves are not free. They can't deliver what they promise. They're still enslaved to sin. They don't know the resurrection power of Christ so they are in no position to promise freedom. They promise what they do not have, and they cannot give. By contrast, the good shepherd commands what he wills and gives what he commands, which leads us, which leads us secondly to see the true colors of the false teachers. Verse 20, Peter says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So they have escaped from the world, and they're entangled in it again. This is where a a Reformed covenant theology is going to help us out to to make sense of this. Peter is not saying that the false teachers were regenerated, and now they're not. That they were vitally united to the Lord Jesus, and now they're cut off from the Lord Jesus. There's a difference between an external association or identification with Christ and faith in Christ. There's a difference between formally identifying with him and vitally being united to him. It's the difference between life and death. These false teachers never had saving knowledge of Christ. They had some knowledge of him, but it was not saving knowledge. They only associated with him in an externalistic way. And the quintessential example of this is Judas Iscariot. We could ask ourselves, was Judas a follower of Jesus? And we could say yes to that question, in a sense. He literally followed Jesus, in the sense that he walked around with him. But Judas was was not a follower of Jesus from the heart. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, this comments on the, on the being enslaved to sin. Start at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So those are the two options. You've either died to sin and are alive to righteousness, or you are dead to righteousness and alive to sin. You are a slave of either the one or the other. So these false teachers may have had some external association with Christ, but they never died to sin in his death. They are still enslaved and under its dominion. So after they have escaped the defilements of the world and then returned to them, verse 20, that last state has become worse than the first. So to never associate with Christ in any way is one thing, as, as, as the pagan does. Never associating with Christ in any way, that's one thing. But to associate with Christ and then reject him is far worse. Richard Bauckham puts it this way, to sin in ignorance, as the heathen do, is one thing. To sin deliberately when the way of righteousness is known and to spurn the gift of righteousness is far more culpable. The warning passages in Hebrews even go so far to say that it is impossible to be renewed, to be restored to repentance after deliberate sin, after tasting the heavenly gift and even knowing the powers of the age to come. There is such a, such a strong description of this external association with Christ. It's not regeneration, but it still is an association with Christ. And to spurn that, your last state becomes far worse than the first. So it, is, it makes sense then that Peter goes on in verse 21 to say, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Returning to the defilements of the world after you have formally identified with Christ means there is no possibility of being restored. So, of course, it would be far better if you never knew the way of righteousness at all. It is better to be a pagan. It's one thing never to know the way of righteousness, but judgment is far more severe, far more severe if you know the way of righteousness and then turn back from it. So the question we all have to answer is, have we in fact trusted Christ for our redemption, or do we only know him in that formal, external way? Verse 22, Peter's liken, Peter likens the apostasy of these false teachers to the dog and to the pig. He says that it is, it is the true proverb that has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This picks up at least from Proverbs twenty six eleven. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. 
You may be aware that dogs and pigs in this era were, were disgusting animals. They were not pets or cute little friends. They didn't have their own movies and TV shows like we have today. Don't think puppies or teacup pigs or babe or anything like that. Here they are, they are disgusting animals. They are disgusting because their filthy nature loves what is filthy so that they want to return to filth. That is why Peter draws on this image. They love it. They can't help it. They can't wait to get back to it. The vomit is still attractive to the dog. The mud pit is still attractive to the pig. It's as if they're, they're saying, I left the defilement of the world for a little while, but I, I need to get back to it. It is where I want to be. Why do they do this? Why does a dog go back to its vomit? The answer is simple, because it is a dog. Why does a pig go back to the mire? Because it is still a pig. Its nature has not changed. They were never regenerated. They were never made alive to God in Christ. Their true nature never changed. For all the external change, there was no heart change. And now they show their true colors. 1 John 2.19 aptly describes this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So the return to vomit, the return to the mud pit, shows that the heart was never changed. You've heard you can take the boy out of the country, you can't take the country out of the boy, something to that effect. We could put it this way for the false teachers. You can take the vomit out of the dog, but you can't keep the dog away from the vomit. You can take the pig out of the mire, but you can't keep the pig away from the mire. This is similar to the prodigal son. Let's, t- let's turn together to Luke 15. won't read the entire parable, but begin in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, 
bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Of course, the, the parable goes on to contrast the prodigal with, with the brother. But the point I want to bring out from this is that the prodigal son is the opposite of the false teachers we see here. The prodigal son leaves home and he wallows in the, in the mire. And he comes to his senses. He has saving faith. The Lord raises him from the dead and the inner man. And the prodigal son says, in the pig pen, what am I doing here? I need to go to my father. And his father receives him. The false teachers, on the other hand, they are in the covenant. They formally identify with Christ. Then they come to their senses and say, what am I doing here? I want to go back to the pig pen. Complete opposites. So what does false teaching promise? Things that even believers still continue to go after. It promises what is not life-giving, what is fleshly, what is false, what is empty. The Lord Jesus gives life. On the other hand, he gives eternal life, resurrection life. In Christ, there is fullness, there is abundance of life. And false teaching only delivers empty promises. To highlight this contrast between the abundance and fullness in Christ and the emptiness of false teaching, I'd like to close by reading a selection from a book by Frances Havergal. She was a hymn writer and author of children's books. She wrote Like a River Glorious that we sang this evening. She wrote a children's book called Morning Stars or Names of Christ for His Little Ones. That book has it covers 31 names of Jesus, one name for each day of the month. It really highlights the, the fullness of Christ's saving work. He's Savior, bright and morning star, friend, brother, redeemer, master, physician, substitute, shepherd, Passover, intercessor, unspeakable gift, leader, commander, head, light, life, rock righteousness, captain, apostle, high priest, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Messiah, judge, hope, and himself. Just to highlight one of those, those names, how she unpacks that Christ is our life, really emphasizing the fullness of life in Christ versus the emptiness that is promised by false teaching. She says this, Once I asked a poor French girl if she was afraid to die. She shrugged her shoulders and said, Ah, death, death, it is terrible, terrible. She was quite right, for death is terrible in itself, and the second death is more terrible still. And if persons have never felt afraid to die, I am afraid it shows they do not know anything about it, like a child fast asleep in a burning house. But just because death is terrible... Christ our life is precious. This is good news for everyone who is afraid to die. Jesus Christ gives us life, not for trying, not even for asking, but only just for believing on him. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Would Jesus have said that and not meant it? 
Would he have said that if you believe in him, you have everlasting life, if he, not, if he only meant that he would perhaps give it to you, and perhaps not? And would he have said everlasting life, if it was a life that you might lose tomorrow and that might not last? Take the gladness of the good news and believe that Jesus meant what he said and meant it for you. And then you need not fear death any more than you fear to go to sleep. For death is only falling asleep for those who are safe in Jesus. It will be only like going to sleep in your little bed and waking up in a different place, the most beautiful place you can imagine. But Jesus does more than give us life. He is our life. Thinking of him as our head will help you to understand this. Your finger, for instance, is not a separate little live thing. It lives because it is joined to your head, and it is because your head is alive that your finger is alive. Just so, Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. And how long will Jesus live? He says, behold, I am alive forevermore. So how long will every little member of Christ live? Must it not be forevermore too? So you see the promise of everlasting life is sure because Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. He died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Do you not see, if you believe in Jesus, your life depends on his life, and it is hidden with him? And do you think Satan could get at what is hidden with Christ? Must it not be quite safe there? Jesus, thy life is mine, dwell evermore in me, and let me see that nothing can untwine my life from thine. Jesus, my life is thine, and evermore shall be hidden in thee, for nothing can untwine thy life from mine. False teaching in all varieties promises much and delivers nothing, and it ends in death. In Christ, God is able to do far more abundantly than, we, than all we ask or think. The Lord Jesus is not a waterless spring. He's the fountain of living water. He promises freedom and actually gives freedom. He turns those who are slaves of corruption, and he makes them slaves of righteousness. And he is the good shepherd who leads his sheep away from the mire and makes us lie down in green pastures, now and forevermore. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.